This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Akil Houston. He's an associate professor of cultural and media studies at Ohio University. He focuses his scholarship on the fields of Africology, African-American, cinema, culture, and gender studies. He believes that pop culture is a fertile source for the study of ideological production. Additionally, hip-hop is one of his scholarly interests. Dr. Houston talks with us about the evolution of blackface as the symbol of racism. Dr. Houston, we've been in the middle of controversy in Virginia with the governor and the attorney general uh, admitting that they appeared in in blackface uh, back in the 80s. Talk about why this is still an issue in the 21st century. I mean, why shouldn't this be something that has long been in our past that we're dealing with? Ideally, it should be. Uh, but so much of the American experience is informed by our past, particularly when we talk about race and the intersection of class and gender. So although time-wise it, it should be behind us, uh, we haven't as a whole really dealt with blackface and then the the underpinnings of blackface there's so much more to it than just you know burnt cork that's that's just the symbol it it, it goes obviously much deeper than that oh absolutely absolutely i, I don't think you can look at uh u.s popular culture uh, at this point or certainly in its origins without also seeing uh, the remnants of the relations of race ra- relations of class and sort of how they intersect with each other as we attempt to uh, be entertained, so to speak. Why do some people, you hear the attorney general of Virginia and and even the governor say, well, we we did this back in the 80s and we didn't do it to poke fun or be disrespectful. We did it to imitate Michael Jackson or or whatever. so what's the big deal? I mean, that's the underpinning of what they're saying. What's the big deal? Absolutely, absolutely. I think to come from that position is to deny the very real consequences of racial play. Uh, Tony Morrison does an excellent treatment on race and the white literary imagination. And so what are the conclusions that she draws is that so much of how we think of the world, even when we're playing, is informed by a certain racial politics. Now, whether or not that's conscious or subconscious, that's certainly a conversation. But to say I was doing this at a particular time or I was unaware, it's almost an attempt to excuse uh, a problematic behavior. Um, But I think to, you know, if you're pulled over by the police, for example, and you say, you know, I I was unaware that there was a a red light here. Um, uh, One of the things they'll probably tell you is that ignorance of the law is no acceptance. So I think in terms of the racial politics of the situation, um, we can no longer afford to say, you know, 
Um, I was unaware because that's that's no excuse for some of the behaviors and certainly the consequences of these behaviors. It, it amazes me that this kind of behavior, both with the attorney general and the the governor, and and this isn't all about them. They're just the lightning rods at, at this point. Uh, they they take it that it was part of the culture and acceptable. It really has never been acceptable, has it? Well, it it has been in some instances. When we think about. Uh, Eric Lott's uh, similar work on blackface, and he talks about the relationship between blackface, the working class, and how it's this place of play, and it's sometimes an attempt at satire. Uh, And these were perfectly acceptable. I think if we go back to the infancy of cinema in this country, uh, we think of the jazz singer, and of course Al Jolson is is in blackface. And what's really telling is the release of, uh, that the character feels when they don the blackface. And so I think that there's a certain layer that goes under-examined uh, when we simply just talk about, you know, the shock of the race and the fact that someone would put on blackface. But beyond that, I think what's deeper is the psychology um, that that's necessary in order to act out or to live these um, imagined realities under the guise of blackface. Um, But, you know, it's certainly been something that has been a trope in pop culture uh, since the early 1900s. We talk about uh, it being a trope towards the African-American population in in the country. But looking back at our history, we uh, satirized Italian-Americans, satirized Irish uh, Americans, Polish um, Americans, uh, the Jewish population. In, in America, it seemed that as the melting pot grew bigger, that there were more racial jokes, the Chinese, the Chinese laundry, the, the uh, abbreviated speech patterns. Those have seemed to fall by the wayside. They're not totally gone, Absolutely. but they've fallen by the wayside. Blackface hasn't. Why? I think the really contentious relationship between blackness and sort of the American imagination hasn't all that much changed. Uh, There's a fascinating book. I mention this book to my students all the time because it it really is amazing, uh, and it gets at the core of racial difference in the United States. Um, It's called uh, How the Irish Became White, Um, and it's a real interesting interrogation of how do you give energy to a particular social construct such as race. And I think when we look at a lot of the dog whistle tactics that are, you know, unfortunately very commonplace in our current moment, uh, you see that there are ways in which people raise the specter of race as this big monster that's going to prevent, stop them um, from achieving what is there. So I think as long as there is that energy with this invisible boogeyman of blackness, um, it will always have life. It will always have resonance in our moment. Um, So although we'd like to think of this as, you know, something that happened a long time ago, uh, the history is very much a a present moment as far as this is concerned. And until that changes, uh, you really don't have the relationship uh, that will change. I know you go back and and study the history of of all of this. Uh, I've only done a a bit of reading in in preparation to talk to you, but I found it interesting. There was an article that talked about the Irish and the African-American populations in the North. 
sharing the same space yes. uh, in, in Manhattan or, or other places uh, and sharing the same impoverished space. So the Irish would go into blackface for entertainment. And it by doing that, it made them more acceptable to the white population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that seems that seems contorted to me, but is that true? I, I mean, mean, yeah, you do see instances of that, uh, and I think you know it's. And this is why I say it's much more complicated than just the burnt cork. Yeah, uh, and I think that some of the the books that have attempted to interrogate this. Uh, such as, you know, Inside the Minstrel Mask, Readings in the 19th Century Blackface. Uh, and you have something that's a little more recent known as uh, Raising Kane, Blackface Performance from Jim Crow to Hip Hop. And I think what these books are trying to do is to tease out the relationship between not just the surfaceness of the issue, but how these moments are really deep psychological examinations of the American psyche. So you can find, for example, and I'm thinking of Lott's work, Eric Lott's work, where he talks about, you know, these performances weren't just uh, meant to mimic African-Americans, but they were really speaking about the insecurities of the rise of women at particular moments and how through these images, you can reappropriate these problematic people in real life. So let's say that women are looking for spaces to advance politically, socially. So what you can then do through the guise of blackface is you can have these impersonators who recapture what being a woman means in a way that's more pleasing, in a way that's more acceptable for their taste. So it's a really complicated set of issues that are behind blackface. Um, So, you know, for example, when we think about Halloween, which is really popular uh, in some spaces, um, you know, the, the types of costumes and the logic behind them is, is very fascinating Uh, When we think about this subject, Um, the fact that you feel like you have to be in blackface in order to be Michael Jordan, for an example, um, really speaks to some other things that are happening beyond just mockery. I think that um, uh, one of the ways that I've I've found useful to to think about it is uh, this idea of blackophobia, blackophilia, um, which is this love and affection for these images, but it's also animated in part by a deep-seated hatred, which, again, goes back to this notion of, of love. I, uh, it, to use the uh, Virginia Attorney General, I wanted to be Michael Jackson, but but I was doing it to honor him, but at the same time, not, is right, what you're saying. Right, right, right. I mean, and it's it speaks to, I think, the degree to which we have not reconciled uh, issues of race in the United States because you, you can't even, when I hear people talk about the justification for why they've done something, it's something that can't be articulated logically. Um, so, yeah, sure, I've wanted to be Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, uh, you know, just in terms of what they've been able to do, but it didn't require blackface, although I do have an advantage. <laughs> but uh, you've seen people dress up before and sure. it doesn't have to go to that particular extreme. So uh, I heard Muhammad Ali talk once uh, back in his prime, and and he had this long recitation of how things that were black or dark always had an evil kind of connotation with it. Um, It was very eye-opening to hear him 
go through that litany. I'm sure it wasn't original with him, but is that still the case? Do we still associate blackness and darkness with evil or mystery or or something that is scary to us? You know, in the American imagination, I think that there's still that resonance of, wow, this is dangerous. Uh, when we think about people who have accused black people of crimes, um, and it, it doesn't have to be a real person. They can just say, well, it was a black person. Uh, you know, when people talk about, you know, some of the challenges that they're they're facing, uh, the boogeyman is, you know, more often than not someone black. You know, when we think about many of the young black people who've been uh, unfairly killed, uh, the conversation uh, that is supposed to garner or elicit fear and in some ways justification relies on these these racial tropes. So he was the, big. The, the Trayvon Martin absolutely, situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you see um, that it still holds weight in our society. Uh, so I think that, you know, again, until that relationship shifts, I don't think the ways in which we think about these ideas are going to shift all that much either. Um, and for some, you know, it's, you know, again, returning to our political climate, my life may be what it is, but at least it's not the life of someone black. Or conversely, you know, because of someone black or someone who is an immigrant, this this boogeyman, uh, this is why things aren't as they should be. So it's it continues to be the space with which uh, many people go to to kind of incite fear or to elicit this idea that there's something very nefarious about blackness and black people. So if we look back historically, the the country has gone through periods. There obviously was the period of the minstrel show, which was blackface and, and it pretends to be entertaining, but at the same time uh, uh, exaggerated alleged stereotypes. At the time, uh, we had that period. Then, in early radio, we had Amos and Andy, uh, two hundred and some episodes. I mean, I look look back. Done by two white guys. Mm-hmm. It was an audio audio blackface. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and and again, perpetuating stereotypes. Then we had. Amos and Andy on television that had a black cast, which was big in the 40s and 50s, but still perpetuated uh, white perceived stereotypes about the black experience. We've had all of these. Do you see a progression? Are we working our way out of it? I, I, I just can't get my head around why that was acceptable. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if we kind of take a step back and look at the heyday of, of Amos and Andy, uh, which was Sam and Henry until I think NBC bought them in 1928. And they converted and, it. <laughs> I mean, the name changed, but the, the context didn't. So I think, you know, the relationship between black enfranchisement and stereotypes have always had an, an interesting sort of um, space together. So if you think about that era, you know, African-Americans are by and large attempting to be enfranchised. Uh, You have the founding of a couple of key um, black 
I'm using black loosely, organizations like the NAACP. Right. Um, and who, who eventually took that show down. Yes, yes. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things where I think that as you see these moments where people are saying, we'd like to be included, we'd like to be regarded as full citizens, you also see the way in which stereotypes to work to counter that particular action. Uh, so all throughout that particular history, you're seeing these moments. In fact, that's one of the key objections that the NAACP had uh, was that at a critical moment um, as they're beginning to mount their Brown versus Board campaign, uh, you see Amos and Andy. And one of their objections, their listed objections, was that, you know, it really denigrates the profession of lawyers. And at the time, the NAACP is saying, you know, we're going to use legal recourse to challenge Jim and Jane Crow policies. So scholars have often felt, you know, when you think about this attempt to be included, there's been this very strong push to sort of say, okay, this is what could happen. Um, If we go back to the classic example with Birth of a Nation in 1915, uh, African-Americans are saying we want to be included. And the film is absolutely running a counter narrative saying, you know, if they are included, uh, this is the kind of laws they will pass. And ultimately, they will be a threat to the South and to the sanctity of white womanhood. Um, And of course, as we know, this is the first film screened in the White House. And the response uh, was was just incredible, just in terms of Klan membership. Uh, And then you have the endorsement by, you know, then President Woodrow Wilson. So it's, it's been interesting that as there are these attempts to move forward, there have been seemingly these calculated images that say, let's step back. Um, and it's, you know, been no great secret that as more and more people are starting to look at the remnants of the Civil War, they're starting to say, OK, a lot of these Civil War monuments, they are populating not after the Civil War, but as African-Americans are attempting to say, can we be included And so you see during Reconstruction that these are moments when you begin to see a lot of these statues being erected. And then as you see the beginning stages of what's considered the modern civil rights movement, you also see those monuments begin to grow and and, in number. So it really suggests that as there's this critical push towards inclusion, there have been these monuments to the past, so to speak, that have sort of said, no, this is not where we are. Um, So. You know, as we are at another critical moment in our country, the uh, as some scholars have argued, the post uh, Obama years, we're seeing in some ways a retreat uh, to want to go back to, you know, a great moment or the way things used to be. And so it's consistent with the historical <laughs> make pattern. Make America great again. Absolutely. That kind of Absolutely. Uh, approach, which is code for make America white again. And Absolutely. let's go back to. Uh, the 40s, 50s. And, and Absolutely. When things were simpler, things were easier. And, and right. white people had control. Yes. Yes. That's the subtext. Absolutely. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And didn't feel threatened. One more historical context before I move on. And, and that is, uh, as, as a child, uh, I watched our gang comedies or, or Little Rascals, and they had been made back in the 30s I'm not that old but but <laughs> they they keep they keep coming back and being recycled in in pop culture it was amazing to me just in looking back that the the kids in that gang were were integrated yes uh and which was big for Hollywood at at that time but at the same time the the 
African American characters were were caricatures. They were they were stereotyped. You had buckwheat, and you had stymie, mm-hmm. uh, who didn't want to work and tried to get out of everything, and buckwheat who was wild and unintelligible, and then you had Farina who. You know, had the pigtails and, and looked like she uh, came off uh, uh, some advertisement in the South. Right, you right. Know? Absolutely. It, 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 it's like, okay, we can do something positive, but we can't go all the way. Right, right. They, they can't be total members of the gang. Right. They're, they're sort of hangers on it, it, in the gang. That, that seems to be a pattern. Yes, it does. Okay. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know what more to say. Absolutely. It's no, a pattern. That, 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 certainly. Certainly. But but when you look back historically, it's not just a, a new thing. You know, it's 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 just variations of the same theme. Absolutely. A- and that's why I'm concerned that we're not progressing, that, that maybe we're just covering things differently. Absolutely. You know, it's really a space for authentically honest conversations. And the way in which many politicians have approached it is not forthright, is not honest. So you can't legitimately expect to get to a new place if you aren't starting from a sincere position. So to be able to have a conversation and say these are problematic images, they are racist, uh, and they may be other things as well, but let's Let's just put the heaviest load on the table. Yeah, and I, I get tired of this. Oh, they're they're not racist. They're just disrespectful. No, they're racist. Yes, <laughs> yes. Call a thing a thing. So, I, you know, I think, you know, to get to this place where these are remnants of the past, you have to first address it uh, and acknowledge that, yes, this is happening uh, and be able to say with absolute certainty that this is wrong. There's no two ways about it. And it seems that everything is a conversation. You know, it's, it's not a conversation that these images are founded on racist ideas. So I think, you know, if we can get to that point, uh, although there's not much <laughs> that indicates we will, uh, I think that's when you can begin to see some, some differences. And then the challenge today is so many people don't have context. So you have, you know, younger artists who are wanting to use these images to take the steam out of them, but don't really have an appreciation for the historical context and how long they have been operating uh, in ways that are, you know, not healthy. So not healthy and 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 subtle in many absolutely in in many ways, not not in your face uh, kind of uh, approaches. Oh, absolutely, and I, and I think that's when they are far more dangerous. You know, the out front right in your face are, are usually more easy to deal with, whereas the, the more subtle and underhanded ways that things get done, um, sometimes those are more difficult to spot. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and 
by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Both of these politicians that, that started our conversation, and, and again, we're not concentrating on them, uh, had incidences of, of their blackface experience in the 80s. And if you look back, you, a lot of these things died out as being socially acceptable. They didn't die out, but as being socially acceptable in the 60s as the civil rights movement uh, moved along. They sort of got lost in the 70s. And then I've read a couple of historians who say because affirmative action came to play in colleges and universities in the 80s, there was this resurgence of of blackface. Does that make sense? Is Absolutely. That That's consistent with, you know, what I've been, you know, sort of sharing right. that, you know, each time you see these moments of attempts at inclusion, there's this counter movement that's taking place. I mean, there was this discussion of reverse racism when there were these charges being brought about on, on companies and, you know, people are saying, well, this reverse racism, um, you know, I always thought if you reverse it, it was gone completely. But <laughs> Um, so, yeah, anytime there has been an effort to include, an effort to move forward, there's always been a resistance. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising if you see in the 1980s, um, and this is, of course, when women and marginalized groups are, are attempting to attend college in greater numbers. They're attempting to be more representative of the corporate force. And so there have been these these nuances where this is a threat to me, uh, Especially in business and in professions, medical professions and law and, and other professions. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, again, I think there's this idea that it's a zero-sum game. Like, either there's access and inclusion for everyone or there's access and inclusion for just me. Uh, but for some, it's, it's not a possibility that, you know, it can actually be an open field for everyone. A survey done this past week in the aftermath or the throes, I should say, of all of this, showed that one-third, over one-third of Americans thought it was still okay to do this. Now, that's less than a majority, but that's an astounding number to me. Right, right. Does that surprise you? I wish it did. It did. I wish I did. I mean, this uh, is the kind of research that I'm doing. Uh, I, I wish it did. You know, during the sort of height of the 1960s freedom movement, uh, they were conducting surveys, you know, on race relations, and more than 50% said everything was fine. So, you know, you're talking about instances of, you know, water hoses on people. You're and talking dogs. about deaths. Yes, yeah. and people, 50% people said, you know, everything is fine. Uh, and many of those folks felt like 
it was the protesters that were creating the problems. And outside agitators. Absolutely. And, and communists. Absolutely. <laughs> and so litany, we can think of all the these other factors on on. that are problems, but certainly not the way that we move and the way that we think about racial difference. Uh, that's not the issue. That was their conclusion. So I'm not at all surprised. Um, you have students who did not grow up during that era, who weren't alive during that era, and some of them don't find it to be a problem. So let's talk about that a little bit. I want to transition to the present because I know you do a, a, your study is both past and present. If you look at the hip hop culture, if you look at, at entertainment, is it going away from all of this? Is it pushing back? You say young people don't have context. How does it fit in sort of this progression? Okay. I think whenever I talk about hip-hop culture, I'm always mindful of the cultural aspects of it that have given it life. So the resistance piece of hip-hop, the questioning of the status quo that is hip-hop. Before you got into the big business. Let's absolutely, put the big but, business right, off right. to the but side I think that, you know, the, the origination. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that, you know, because I have to be careful. I don't want it to appear as that it was some utopia and then big business got involved and now it's corrupt. No, no. I think that those elements have always coexisted. But I think now more so than ever, you do have a very heavy handed commercial influence. So a lot of what we're seeing on television, music videos, award shows is manufactured hip hop culture. You know, I watched the Grammys the uh, Sunday night and and. I, you know, it was great that they had the tribute to Motown, and, and that's fine. That was my era. But it, it um, the show seemed diluted mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, sort of homogenized. Uh, I, I didn't see the cutting-edge artists, and I know, in fact, some artists decided not to go right. and not to— participate did did was i wrong in looking at it that way i don't think so i think you it's so difficult because there are some really talented individuals right uh, and i don't want to take that away from them but at the same time there is a lack of just in general a critical consciousness uh, so much of what happens now seems to be motivated by particular moments so you know the me too movement for example um the protests against the NFL, and then you see sort of these reactions to it. Whereas uh, in, in many decades before, there was sort of this continuum of critique from a lot of rappers um, that you don't necessarily see. But that's difficult to do if you're very concerned about your bottom line, um, how will this impact my brand, uh, which are great questions for the business-minded, uh, which I think you see a lot more of that within hip-hop than you have in years past. I mean, you have... Countless stories of originators, Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, people from that era who are saying, you know, I would have done this for free. I love doing this. Or we weren't thinking about getting paid. But nowadays. Or I started doing it for absolutely, free. <laughs> absolutely. Jazzy J says I would be DJing a party, go home and stay up to early in the morning practicing. So that's a different mentality than an artist who says, you know what, I need to see, you know, what my numbers are saying. What are the analytics telling me about what I need to do when I need to be online? So it's it's a different um, it's a different animal, and um, you know yeah I don't I don't think you're wrong in sort of looking at the water. I mean it's the Grammys, uh, so it's not <laughs> like you're gonna get 
the most hard hitting critique right. of capitalism and, and things no. of that nature. You're, you're, you're going to get what sells. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they'll gesture toward it. There'll be some tribute or a talk. But it's interesting because you mentioned the tribute to Motown, but I don't think there's a tribute to Stacks plan. No. <laughs> and if anybody ever goes to Memphis, they have to do the Stacks tour. Absolutely. It, it, Absolutely. it was an amazing, eye-opening uh, uh trip for me uh, to to do that, uh, things that I hadn't realized. You just put them in the Motown bag, and, right. and it was right. a total different sound. It was a to- total different culture. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, I don't know how to put this, so let me just try to put it. If you're looking at the hip-hop culture from the African-American experience and as as – being something that spoke to conditions and spoke to relevance. Have whites tried to co-opt that? And, you know, more white music is uh, rap-based or hip-hop-based. Is it something that's being diluted by an infringement of other cultures? Mm, That's a good question. You know, I think that the relationship between black popular culture, whether we call it hip hop or something else, uh, and U.S. society has always been one of of appropriation, uh, acknowledged or not. Um, it's it's always been there. So I think as hip hop has become synonymous, and in some respects, it's more pop culture than it is hip hop culture. Uh, okay. So I think you okay. you do find that relationship, but I don't. I mean, I kind of hinted at this before. I don't think you're going to get the raw form of rap music and hip hop culture being palatable for mainstream. It's it's sort of reminiscent of the blues, you know. So in its origins, it represents you know the working class. It represents you know truth tellers who aren't concerned with about how they look or being universally understood and storytellers. Absolutely. So I think. In order for that to make sense to a larger group of people who may not share those socioeconomic experiences, um, you, you've got to dilute it. And so I think the stories that are popular in a lot of rap songs are, you know, materialism, uh, consumerism, excess, let's enjoy the good life. And those have far greater resonance than some of the critiques about social inequality. Um, although you do have some exceptions, there are a few artists today who are merging those conversations with what's popular and surprisingly a few of them are doing very well but i feel like there are always spaces for those exceptions and they don't disprove the general rule that by and large what you're getting is a very diluted product that has been appropriated well again looking back his for historical context uh the summer i read uh a couple of, uh, uh, not autobiographies, biographies of Louis Armstrong and mm. and, and uh, Duke Ellington. Okay. And to see how their music generated from their backgrounds and their culture, but then it got appropriated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had to have a white manager in order to get jobs, and then the record companies would change the music, and then white players would come along and and try to uh, take your music and and 
become commercially successful. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, with that, so it's not a new phenomenon, is right? It? No, not at all. I mean, I think about you know, sort of in the same vein. There's a great documentary on Sam Cooke, and just oh, sort of, I haven't seen that. That's yeah, just out, isn't it? Yeah, it's just out. I thought they did a, a fair job of contextualizing his life and. You really get to see more of the fullness of, of who he was. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it's not uncommon. Uh, and it's as if the larger public can't accept or digest without those delusions. So, I, you know, I recall Little Richard talking about his experiences and, you know, how there were limited radio stations that were playing his music. Right. But Pat Boone was across the nation. Um, and it's it's his song. Uh, so, you know, it's. I wish it was something different, obviously, but I think today you may not have someone actually taking your music and doing your material, um, but they will present you to the wider public, but as a less threatening uh, sort of image and packaging. Got to take off the rough edges. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And, and polish it absolutely. Uh, uh, a bit. Uh, one last question, and and maybe there's no answer to it, but... Being a young man who grew up in the 50s and came to maturation in the 60s and and thinking that we had made progress, and in many ways we have in in racial relations and and understanding, I'm now to a point in the Trump era, to be quite honest, but I think it's just symbolic of an era that I see a lot of the strides that we made disappearing, mm-hmm. and I didn't think they were that fragile. Right. And so as a, a an older person now, I'm looking forward and thinking, what do we do now? Do, mm. do we have to start over? You know, uh, can we build on what we have? How do we have this conversation that you mentioned earlier? Nobody seems willing to have it. And, and how are we going to get there? How do you feel as a younger man about mm-hmm. all that? Well, you know, I think the critiques that, and this is something I think about often, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, James Baldwin, uh, Malcolm X, Miles Horton, and, and the list goes on. I think that their critiques need to be listened to in earnest. Uh, I think there was too much of a willingness to pat ourselves on the back for the progress we had made, and we hadn't. You know, it's a famous quote that Malcolm has where he talks about being stabbed in the back. And he said, if you remove the knife six inches, that's not progress. Um, And I think that's where we are. It's like we've had this very injurious past, and we've removed it six inches, the knife, so to speak. And we're patting ourselves on the back saying how wonderful we are because we've done this, and we have not done much. So I think in those critiques that these artists, these activists have left behind are pathways to what we do next. Um, as much as we talk about Dr. King, for example, um, how much are we willing to listen to where do we go from here or his critiques of you know, U.S. imperialism beyond the March on Washington? Because I feel like if you look at his work, um, imperfect as we may think it is, uh, there is a blueprint. There is a pathway forward. But it will require, and James Baldwin talked about this often, of us giving up something. Uh, So I think, you know, that something that Baldwin is speaking about is this false notion of we've arrived, we're successful. I now have 
Asian and black lawyers living on my street. So we've progressed. Uh, I think that we have to look a little more deeply and really begin to think about, you know, what what are earnest, authentic conversations look like? And and mix class. Absolutely. In, Absolutely. With race and not separate them as Absolutely. As they're as they're intimately intertwined. Um, you know, and I also think um, – just thinking of a contemporary voice, uh, Brene Brown, who writes quite a bit on vulnerability. I think work like that needs to be thoroughly explored and interrogated because I think there are some real pathways to different possibilities through those kinds of works. If one of our listeners out there would like to read more or watch something, do you have any couple of recommendations for them? What what would you have them read? Oh, sure. Or, or what would you have them watch? Yeah, I'm a professor, so I got recommendations <laughs> for days. Uh, I mentioned the Sam Cooke documentary. Uh, I really like that. Uh, and it depends on the subject. If you're just talking about a general overview of uh, the history of, you know, blackface, things of that sort, there's a classic documentary by Marlon Riggs called Ethnic Notions. It's made in 87, and it's, it's disturbing how relevant it still is. Uh, he also follows that up with a piece called Color Adjustment, uh, which was made, I think, in 1990-91. Um, so I would recommend those. Uh, there's a scholar by the name of Donald Bogle who chronicles uh, the history of African-American representation. Um, if you're looking specifically at film, he's got a book called uh, Tom's, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks, an Interpretive History of Blacks in American Film. He's got Primetime Blues, which is about primetime television. Uh, Dorothy Dandridge, uh, I would read... Her biography, um, it's an interesting story, which, you know, touches on a lot that we're right. talking about. Um, the books that I mentioned earlier, Eric Lott's Love and Theft, uh, which talks about blackface minstrelsy. And Toni Morrison. Absolutely. Toni Morrison is on that list. Um, there's a scholar by the name of Trisha Rose. I recommend this book all the time, The Hip Hop Wars, what we talk about when we talk about hip hop culture. Um, of course, I would say my own textbooks, if That's you're interested. Right. Um, Beyond Blackface uh, is one of them, uh, Africana Images in U.S. Media. Uh, another work is um, the Africana Studies Reader, Af- Africana Media Studies Reader, uh, would certainly be something I would suggest. Uh, and, you know, of course, you know, anything by Lorraine Hansberry, James Baldwin. Uh, there's a new work out that's pretty good. Uh, by Amani Perry, which is on Lorraine Hansberry. Um, so I think, you know, I mentioned earlier listening to some of these critiques. I think these are some great resources. I saw not too long ago a, a great documentary on James Baldwin mm-hmm. a, a, as as well, and I forget the title. Is it uh, the Raul Peck, Not Your Negro? Yes. Or is it, okay, yeah, yeah. it is a great one. It is a great one. And and if somebody's not familiar with James Baldwin, certainly gives them a, an a open door Absolutely. In, in, into Absolutely. His, his work. Dr. Houston, thank you so much. Thanks for, for having me. I appreciate, appreciate the conversation. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Akil Houston, an associate professor of cultural and media studies at Ohio University. We've been examining the history of blackface and other racist symbols and stereotypes in our society. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. 
Spectrum also is available at the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. <laughs>